I heard a story in the news this week that I am fairly certain is a sign of the end of our civilization. Uh, you may have seen it too, uh, you may have heard it in a number of outlets I, I saw. Here's NPR's succinct headline, Parents Hire Fortnite Coach to Help Train Kids. Now, um, if you don't know, Fortnite is an online game that was introduced in 2017 and has since become a cultural phenomenon. There's over 125 million Fortnite uh, players play regularly. Uh, and if you really think that your son or daughter is, uh, needs it, you can hire a coach to help them improve their score on the game. Uh, now, when I first heard that story, I, like all non-video game players, just groaned. Um, Surely this is a sign of the end of our civilization. But then I read, uh, I learned that some colleges are now actually offering scholarships for what they call e-sports. And um, I, I bet a hundred years ago, when they, or, or so I don't know when they started, when they first started offering football scholarships and basketball scholarships, don't you think there were some intellectual snobs who groaned and who said, I can't believe it, you're going to go to Harvard because you can throw a ball? That's ridiculous right? Just like me. I can't believe it. you're going to go to college because you can push a button. That's ridiculous, right? So I suppose why not a scholarship for a video game? And if you're going to get a scholarship, you probably need a coach, right? Well, actually, what's really disturbing to me about the article is uh, the reason why parents are hiring coaches. Um, wh what did they say? Uh, what, why are you paying money to have somebody coach your kid on how to play this online video game? And some of the parents admitted that they hire coaches so that they can brag to their friends about how well their children are doing at Fortnite. That, I think, is maybe the harbinger of the end of our civilization. Uh, we human beings, think with me about this for a minute, uh, we human beings are constantly on the hunt for something some attribute, some accomplishment, some achievement, something that will distinguish us from everyone else. Not just distinguish you, but mark you out as, as better. We look for these distinguishing characteristics all the time, and when we talk about them, we, we call that boasting. Boasting, I'll give you a simple definition. Boasting happens when pride goes public. When pride goes public. See, the problem with boasting is not just the words. Boasting is not a tongue problem. Boasting is ultimately a heart problem. Boasting comes from a heart that is controlled by an attitude of superiority. Your pride convinces you that you are a superior human being and then you announce it with your mouth. Uh, when you announce that with your mouth, you are boasting. And we do it all the time. Some of us boast about our accomplishments and some people boast about our sufferings. You get into a car accident over the weekend, you go to work on Monday and you'll find at least two people who have been in a much worse car accident than you've been in. Right? We all do this. Boasting is common and, and really it's a problem that other people have. You know, those other people, you know who I'm talking about, right? Those people who boast all the time. Today what I would want to do is I want to take, I want to show you how Christianity lays the axe at the root of boasting. The term arrogant Christian is radically self-contradictory. I say that acknowledging the fact that I know some arrogant Christians and in fact sometimes I am one. 
But arrogance and the boasting that is a fruit of it is radically contradictory to the heart of Christianity itself. So that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how Christianity takes the axe to the root of boasting. And I want to tell you, first of all, here, how I want to accomplish it, and then I'm going to tell you why I want to accomplish that goal. The how has to do with a passage of Scripture that Jason read a few moments ago. So if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me back to that again, to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to talk about this passage of Scripture. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew ahead of you. If you don't have a Bible at all in your possession, I'd love for you to take that copy of the Bible home with you that are in the pews for you to use. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take it home with you. Uh, We would love for you to take it as a gift from our church. Um, If you don't like that one, as I say, go to the Lost and Found. There's probably a better one there that you can take with you home. That would be fine. But uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is where I want to direct your attention. We're going to walk through these verses, not in great depth, but I want to walk through them in enough detail so that when we get to verse 9 and where Paul says, not by works so that no one can boast, you'll understand why Paul wrote about boasting so much and why that phrase is, is here. So that's the how, how I want to show you that Christianity takes the axe to the root of boasting. The why, why we're going to do that has to do with something that we've been doing together as a church on Sunday mornings this summer. Uh, When we get together the Sunday mornings, uh, we have been studying the truths that are contained in our doctrinal statements. It's not our normal practice, but it's what we've been doing this summer. Uh, Now, I know we have some guests today. We have guests every Sunday. Um, And you might not be familiar with a church doctrinal statement or a statement of faith. It's basically a summary of some of the most important teachings in the Bible. And we summarize those in ten paragraphs. And then we unite as a church around these ten paragraphs. As members of the church, we don't have to agree with about everything. We don't agree about everything. But here are the truths that do unite us. And we've been reviewing them together this summer. Uh, My daughter, Jenna, just joined the uh, Penn Manor marching band. She's uh, happily uh, part of the band. And band camp was Monday morning, the first day of band camp. So I dropped her off and I stuck around because I volunteered to be a chaperone for band camp, trying to make sure all those teenagers drank enough water out there in the heat. I failed miserably. I lost three of them. But uh, I was there. So... One of the things that I noticed during band camp, well, the first thing that happened is the director of the band camp stood up in front of the band and he said, now remember, what are we aiming at? These are our goals. Uh, we want to be an excellent band and everybody's going to have to work hard and we're all going to give 100% all week long to make sure that our band, that we meet our goals and that we hit our standards and our aspirations. You know, I bet a lot of coaches have done that in the last few weeks. Probably principals meeting with their faculty members. This is our school, and this is what our school is about, and this is where we aim for. This is just review of the basic values and basic standards that mark a college football team, professional football team, a high school soccer team, a marching band, a group of teachers. Well, this is our chance here as a church to review those basic standards that drive us and that unite us and that are important to us. And today we're going to come to the section uh, uh, of our doctrinal statement about salvation. This is what we believe about how God has rescued us, how he has saved us. 
We're going to read it together. If you want to, uh, you can take this green note sheet that's in your bulletin. We're going to read this section. This is section 7, I believe, of our doctrinal statement. Some of you, as as a congregation members, members of church, you'll be reading this affirmatively. You'll be saying, yes, this is what I believe. Some of you who are not familiar with it as much will be reading it for information. What does this say? Well, here we go. Let's read this together. It's the italicized paragraph there underneath the title, When Pride Goes Public. So let's read this together this morning, shall we? We believe humans can be restored to a right relationship with God only by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This salvation is based upon the sovereign kindness of God. It is made possible through the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. It is a gift received by faith apart from any human merit, works, or ritual. Salvation results in loving and obeying God. It will culminate in bodily resurrection and perfect conformity to the character of Christ. This paragraph is about salvation. This passage of scripture that we have open, Ephesians 2, is about salvation. And here's what I want to do. That's our subject for today. I want to give you three observations, three statements about salvation based on the text and our doctrinal statement. And then along the way, I want to show you how they are so um, explosive to our boasting, what they do to eradicate it, to cut the roots of boasting. So let's start. Here's salvation. Number one, salvation is necessary. Salvation is necessary. We need to be rescued. And salvation is necessary because of our spiritual condition, which is described for us in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Look again what the text says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So the reason salvation is necessary, the reason we need to be rescued is because we're spiritually dead. You were, you were dead, the text says. Our doctrinal statement says we need to be restored to a right relationship with God, but it means the same thing spiritually dead. And Paul describes it in, in a number of ways, this death. Now, I have a picture there in the notes. When I was in college, this comes back from, for me, uh, my professor said, uh, the, the text here describes someone being spiritually dead, and he had us draw a dead stick figure in our notes and put a coffin around it, four-sided coffin. And he said, there's four things here that contribute to our spiritual death. And uh, he had us label each side of the coffin. So I've already drawn the picture of the dead guy. So uh, there it is for you. Let me, let's, what does Paul, how does Paul elaborate on this? First of all, he says, one side you can label sin. Sin. You were dead in transgressions and sins. We'll talk about what that is in ju- just a minute. Secondly, second side of the box is the world. The world. He talks about you followed the ways of this world. The third side of the box you could label if you wanted to, you could label it Satan. Satan, he's mentioned here in this text. He is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And then the fourth side you could label flesh, flesh. All four of these things uh, lined up against us, contributing to our spiritual deadness. 
Why are we spiritually dead? Because of sin. The choices that we have made to break God's rules. We have all disobeyed our Creator. He's the one to whom we hold a highest allegiance and obedience, but we have a track record of disobedience, sin. Our spiritual deadness is also connected to our spiritually dead environment. That's what the, the word world here means. When the Bible uses the word world, sometimes it refers to the, the uh, population of the world, the whole world. Sometimes it refers to the, the geographic, the, the, the planet, the world. And sometimes it refers to this system that is dominant on our planet. It's not an organized system, but it's just a disposition that is... That is in rebellion against God, or oriented away from Him. School starts in a couple of weeks, and uh, I, some of you have children who ride the bus. They ride the bus to school. I don't know any parent in the world who is excited about the bus. Think about this, how this will go. So you'll take your children out. I mean, I'm grateful for the bus. I'm, I'm grateful for the transportation. I'm grateful for a bus driver. But, you know, you take your children out uh, onto the porch or to the bus stop. And, and when you see that yellow box coming down the road, do you look at that yellow box, that big yellow box, and think to yourself, now there is a place where my child is going to be discipled in obedience and respect and gentleness. Right? Is that what you think about when you see the bus? As you see it come down the road and you think, I hope they're not on there for long, right? Uh, it, the, the, the bus is not a place where children are nurtured in a godliness, in obedience and, and respect. It's not the bus driver's fault. We love our bus driver. Uh, she's doing the best she can to keep the bus on the road and the children from killing each other. But that is not... The bus is a world, it's a world unto itself that does not produce wonderful citizens. It's more like Lord of the Flies. Okay, that's what the bus is like. Are there many places, oh, think about this, are there many places in the world that naturally encourage us to be generous and kind and selfless? Not just the bus, are there, are there many places? When you go to the mall, when you get out of your car and you go to the mall, you think to yourself, now this is a place that... that that nurtures selflessness and generosity. Is that what you think when you... I don't think so. It's not what they're selling at H&M, right? This is a system, the world system in rebellion against God. Paul mentions here Satan here because we have a supernatural spiritual enemy who is, the Bible tells us, a murderer. He delights in death. Our enemy, Satan, is God's enemy. He hates God and he's committed to ravaging the world that God made. So his presence is a contributor to our spiritual condition. And then he mentions our flesh. Again, the Bible uses the word flesh in a number of ways. Sometimes it just means we're made of flesh. We're made of flesh and blood. But here it's talking about this internal disposition that we have against God. This craving, longing, desiring, broken nature that we have. You can understand this if, if uh, you've ever been on a diet, right? Um, you know what you should eat when you're on a diet, but your appetite craves things. You want donuts and candy and french fries and pizza. That's what you want. You long for it. You have these cravings that are part of your makeup. And the flesh that Paul is talking about here are these cravings. You crave what is contrary to God's will. And all of these things contribute together. We are dead. We do not have a right relationship with God. And if we, if we will have life, if you want to have life, it's going to come because of an outside, external to yourself work. 
It's going to have to come from the outside. It can't come from you because you're dead. Salvation is necessary. Brian Chappell asked us to imagine ourselves standing in Lazarus' tomb. Remember the story of Lazarus? So Lazarus is one of Jesus' friends. It's a very famous story about him told in the Gospel of John. Lazarus dies, and they bury him in the tomb. And, and Jesus comes a couple of days later, and he shows up. And Brian Chapel says, imagine that you're in the tomb, there's Lazarus laid out in front of you, and Jesus is outside and you know he's there, and there's the corpse, and you start to address him. And you say, hey, Lazarus, Jesus is here. He's probably going to do something really impressive, so don't let him down. I hope you're listening, Lazarus. Uh, if you're listening to me, Lazarus, if you can hear me, wiggle one of your toes, just so I know that, that you're hearing me, because... He's going to speak, and you don't want to show it. You don't want to make him look stupid. Um, Lazarus, I don't think you're really listening to me here. right? Lazarus, you have to do your part. But Lazarus isn't listening because Lazarus is dead. And, and, and you can stand there, and you can berate Lazarus, and you can plead with Lazarus. You can sing a beautiful song over Lazarus. You can do everything you can, but you are not going to be able to bring Lazarus back from the dead. There's only one voice that Lazarus will respond to. It's the voice of the Lord Jesus. He's dead, and only Jesus can bring him back to life. And if you're today a Christian, you are dead too, and only Jesus brought you back to life. Now, I recognize for you, some of you, you talk about your own story of how you became a follower of Jesus. It might not feel that way. Um, it's part of the strange era in which we live. We're physically alive and spiritually dead. Some of you who are followers of Jesus, you can tell me about the time that you believed and, and maybe there was a preacher who did plead with you or a friend. Or maybe you went forward in a service you, know, you were there with your brother and he decided to go forward and you, answered, you, you went with him and, and so you, you followed him down the aisle. Maybe you, you attribute some song you heard was the point in time in which, which you believed. Those may be the circumstances that attended your new life, but the power, the power came only from the voice of the Lord Jesus who called you. What Paul is saying here is uh, he's, you were dead. You were dead. And because of your condition, you have no reason to boast. You have nothing to boast about. Formerly dead people cannot boast about being alive. Now, why does Paul emphasize this spiritual condition so much? Well, um, one of the great concerns that Paul had for the churches that were under his care is he was concerned about the unity within the churches. And one of the things that destroys unity is boasting. He was particularly concerned about the religious people, the formerly religious people in this church in Ephesus. Uh, They were mostly Jews, Jewish people who took very seriously the commands of the Old Testament before they turned to Jesus. And they had this tendency, I understand it, I totally understand it, this tendency to believe that somehow their religiosity in some way contributed to their new life in Jesus. Do you ever face that temptation? Some of you, like me, you have a great biography. You grew up in a home where your parents were followers of Jesus and you, uh, the first class, Sunday school class you attended at church was nursery, right? And you were there all the time. It's very easy to think, well, of course, of course, God would save me. I mean, I've got a pretty impressive track record. I've done a lot of good things. I understand that temptation. 
Paul says it's deadly. And, and, and this, this sense of religious superiority was over against the, the non-Jews or the Gentiles in this church, these followers of Jesus who didn't have that religious pedigree. Boasting, this sense of superiority, is inherently divisive. You, you can understand that. Um, I, I, I am better than you. I deserve to be here. You a little less so. It's me on this side, you on that side, because I'm so much better. And to cut that off, Paul writes this message. And you know what he says? He's telling us here in Ephesians chapter 2, what you have in common as human beings is much more important, much more central than what distinguishes you as human beings. What you have in common with other people, depending on, regardless of what you see in them, what you have in common with them is much more central than what is different between you and other people. This is not a lesson that Jonah the prophet learned, or at least one that he appeared to learn. We talked about this story of the prophet. Uh, uh, we tend to focus on the story of uh, this is an example of the consequences of disobeying God. When God tells you to do something, you should do it. You shouldn't run the other way. That, that's true. But I think the story is much more about, uh, much more about that. It, it shows us what happens with that sense of superiority, what se- happens when that sense of superiority goes national, or what happens when it goes racial, or when it goes ethnic. When it moves from just being about you and another person over the water cooler, when you're bragging about your teenage son's uh, Fortnite scores, and, and when, when, when it goes from there to broader and you start looking at people in, in general. This weekend is the one-year anniversary of the gathering of white supremacists called Unite the Right in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia. It happened one year ago. Uh, this also, this past week, or coming up, is the four-year anniversary of the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, uh, helped uh, launch the Black Lives Matter movement. We need some help, don't we? Need some help when it comes to thinking about race and ethnicity. Jonah did not run away from God because he was feeling especially ornery that day. Jonah did not run away from God because he had something better to do. He ran because he hated the Ninevites. He did not want them to be forgiven. He did not think they deserved to be forgiven. We'll come back to Jonah in just a minute, but can I remind you and uh, encourage you? So there's going to be another rally tonight in Washington, D.C. Some of you have heard about it. There'll be a few hundred people that will be there. Again, a Unite the Right two. I can name three churches, I think, within five miles of the Capitol where these Unite the Right people will be, uh, these hundreds of people. I can name three churches that each of them will have at least a thousand people in it this day. And those three churches will be made up of uh, people from a multitude of ethnicities and a multitude of nations. And they'll gather together under the banner of the Lord Jesus to encourage and comfort and love one another. Multiracially, multinationally, multiethnically. Where do you think CNN is going to be today? It's not going to be outside any of those churches. It's going to be downtown uh, showing us how terrible things are because of these few hundred horrible people. You should remember that when, when you watch the news. You think, think about that. 
Jonah, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he hated the Ninevites and he was afraid that they would repent and that God would forgive them. He did not want them to be forgiven. And, and it, it says that in the text. Look at Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. So after Jonah preaches, when God saw what they did, the Ninevites, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And I hate it, and I hate the fact that you've forgiven the Ninevites. Now, Lord, take my life away, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah. Jonah's driven here by a pride that has blinded him to his own heart condition. Who in the story of Jonah needs to be forgiven? Well, Jonah, first of all. And the Ninevites, (laughs) too. He, he won't acknowledge that he and the Ninevites have a lot more in common with each other than they do differences. Spiritual death. Without the intervention of God, they're all lost. When this pride that Jonah's having moves out into the public square and you begin making comparison between groups of people, you have the flourishing of ethnic tensions. And Paul is reminding us here, it is very important, remember this, what you have in common with people is more central than what distinguishes you from them. You will be tempted to think that it's their nationality or their ethnicity or their language or their IQ or their athletic ability or their height or uh, their social graces that is the important distinguisher, uh, that more central. That's not true. What is central is that we all have this terrible need. We are all dead. So salvation is necessary. Now let's move on here. Secondly, I want you to see salvation is God's work. Salvation is God's work. Think again our doctrinal statement. It says this salvation, or you can be restored to a right relationship with God only by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This salvation is based on the sovereign kindness of God. It is made possible but through the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. It is a gift. It's a gift received by faith apart from any human merit, works, or ritual. That's just an explanation or an expansion of what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4. Look what it says here. We'll read to verse 9. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in its kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. There's two key words here to consider in these verses. The words are grace and faith. Grace and faith. Paul stumbles over himself with these adjectives when he's talking about God's grace. God has great love. He's rich in mercy. He has incomparably rich grace. You see all those, I think he uses the word grace, I'm not sure, ten times in these nine verses. He piles this on, this, this richness, this mercy, this love. Now he makes that point Because at the end of verse 3, he says, 
we are naturally objects of God's wrath. God's love for spiritually dead human beings is contrary to what anyone should expect. No one deserves God's love. This is the time of the year when I get maggots in my garbage cans. Does that happen to any of you? It's hot, it's humid. So I put my garbage cans back in the garage uh, after the garbage men come on uh, Wednesday morning and I, I put them back in the garage and then the Wednesday afternoon, it's just wonderful, for the, depending on the schedule of our garbage bags, I put something especially juicy right in the garbage can. You know how that goes, you know, meat or something just wonderful. And, and it's hot and humid, so flies will land and they'll gorge themselves and they'll lay their eggs and then, and then I'll, I'll unwittingly take the garbage out. And usually the maggots, they stay hidden. I don't know about them, thankfully, until, unless it rains. It's been raining a lot. So last Wednesday when I went out to get the garbage cans, I walked up to them and I smelled something not good. And I looked and there were maggots all over the garbage can, just crawling around. Um, is anybody going to begrudge me or is anybody going to be angry if I take uh, a hose and some soap and a really, really long brush, really long, and scrub those ma- maggots out of my grocery can, uh, garbage cans? They had groceries in them. At one, there was groceries at one point in time, right? Is, any, is anybody going to be mad or raise an objection to that? If I try to eradicate the maggots from my garbage cans? Here's the bad news. You are spiritually dead. Can we begrudge God that he would not want rebels like you and me in the world that he had made? Contrary to what you might expect... So we're naturally objects of God's wrath. So, so why, why in the world would he save us? Why in the world would he rescue us? It's because of his great love. He's rich in mercy and he rescues his people. Contrary to what you might expect, contrary to, to what we would consider to be reasonable, God is rich in love, full of mercy. There's not a lot of detail in this text about how God rescues us. It says, he made us alive with Christ. And verse 6, he raised us up with Christ. So um, he, he rescued us by uniting us to Christ, by putting us together with him. There are other passages of scriptures that go into greater detail than this. Basically, God took my sin and he credited it to Jesus and Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And then Jesus rose again and he credits me with Jesus' resurrection, his righteousness and his resurrection. So I, I, Jesus got all of my blame and I get all of Jesus' credit. I'm united with Christ. That's what God does. He makes us alive with Christ. He raises us up with Christ. I get new life through Jesus. This is an act of mercy. It's an act of grace. It's an act that is so stunning. Verse 7 says that we're going to be thinking about this in the coming ages when we've been there 10,000 years. We've no less days to sing God's praise, right? We're going to be thinking in the coming ages he's going to show the incomparable riches of his grace. That's what we're be thinking about forever. It's, so, it's that stunning, we're not used to this sort of grace. It makes us uncomfortable. This salvation is not from yourselves. It is a gift. It is not from work. It, it is not come from human merit, from works, from ritual. It is God's work, and we struggle with that. 
want you to imagine that your neighbor came over to you one day and uh, your neighbor says, he says, um, you know, I have some free time today and I want to bless you. I really want to bless you. If it's okay with you, I'm going to wash all of your windows, the outside of your windows. And, and you're really surprised, but you see that he's brought all the supplies with him. He's got a ladder. He's got the hose. He's got the cloths. He's got the soap. The hose is even hooked up to his house. He's not even going to use your water. Now, what's your first instinct? Probably your first instinct would be to decline, right? Oh, no, no, you don't need to do that. I mean, I really appreciate it living next to you, but you don't need to do this, no. But he, he insists. So your next instinct, probably once he gets started, is to go in your house and change and get out there and help him, right? At least you can hold the ladder, right? How many of you would be able to sit comfortably in your house and relax like he wants you to while your neighbor is cleaning your windows? Wouldn't that drive you crazy? That's your second second instinct but he he turns down your offer of help he insists that you go in your house so your third instinct you say to him all right i'm going to make you some lemonade i'm going to go to the grocery store i'm going to buy fresh none of this country time powder stuff i'm going to get lemons and sugar and i'm going to bring it up i'm going to make it for you so that you can have a nice cold drink while you wash my windows and he says you know what i i got up early this morning i made lemonade i have four gallons of it i brought it over with me so i can drink i don't need your lemonade Okay, well, at least I know I'm going to bake you some chocolate chip cookies because you'll really like them. And he says, you know, my wife, she just won the Betty Crocker National Chocolate Chip Cookie Contest. <laughs> and, and I have an abundance of chocolate chip cookies at my house, and they're the best cookies in the nation, so I don't need your cookies. So um, thank you, but I, I really don't need... And then you, you begin to realize, how long is it going to take you to realize that your neighbor has no needs or no wants that you can fulfill. He doesn't need anything from you. He just came to be kind. Can you genuinely receive his gift? God needs nothing from you. You don't have anything that you could give him. What do you have? You're dead. All you have is a whole lot of stank a whole lot of mess. You have nothing that God needs. You have nothing that can enhance his life. There's no payment you can make. There's no exchange you can offer. All you can do is receive. And if you try to pay him back, it's almost an insult because you apparently don't realize how bad off you really are. Because to even think that you have something that God needs, you're confused. All you can do is receive. Which leads to the second key word in the text, of course, here, faith. Faith. And now we come to the faith part and you say to yourself, Aha! Finally, something that I can do. I can believe. I will muster up the faith. Except the text says that the faith is not from you. It's a gift from God. The word faith means trust, of course, to to rely on. To trust, to rely on Jesus is, is to express need to him. To recognize how empty before him your hands really are. Isn't that what happens often? So we, in our foolishness, we spend our lives convincing ourselves that we have great treasures that we can boast about. Look at my job. Isn't it great? Have you seen how good-looking I am? Right. Do you know about, about my athletic prowess and the records that I set in high school? Do you know about that? Or, um, 
have you seen my kid play Fortnite? It's really impressive, right? All these things you're trying to put in your hand. And somehow in the process of time, sometimes God, through a friend maybe, or through circumstances, he realizes that what you've got in your hand isn't that valuable. Someday you're going to retire from that job. Somebody else is going to be sitting at your desk. Within five years, at least half of the company's not going to know your name anymore. Your good looks, they fade. You, your athletic prowess is not impressive. The trophy's dusty. You got bad knees or bad back. Fortnite, who cares what your score is on Fortnite and your kids score on Fortnite, right? And God, in the process of time, empties your hand. You got nothing in there. And God says, he comes to you and he says, I love you. Would you like me to put something in your hand? Oh, you say, yes, please. Faith, yes, please. Fill my hands. Wash my dirty hands. Fill them with your son. The great gift of your son. That's what faith is. It's not a work. It's not a ritual. It's not merit. It's not being good enough. It's not doing enough. But it is faith. Yes, please. Yes, please. Give me the life that is in your son, please. The reason that arrogance is so out of place in the mind and heart of followers of Jesus is because we're empty-handed people. And God has filled up our hands. You, you can't even be a Christian without recognizing that you're an empty-handed person. You don't deserve any of the credit. It's God's work. Now, once you have been made alive, what's next? Here's point number three. Salvation brings life change. Salvation brings life change. Once you've been made alive, what's next? Both Ephesians 2.10 and the doctrinal statement addresses, so let's start with the Bible. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And the doctrinal statement says, Salvation results in loving and obeying God. It will culminate in bodily resurrection and perfect conformity to the character of Christ. What do formerly dead, now alive people do? They lead different lives. John Stott wrote, he said, Becoming and being a Christian involves a change so radical that no imagery can do it justice except death and resurrection, dying to the old, self of self to the old life of self-centeredness and rising to a new life of holiness and love. Imagine parents, they bring their new baby home, right? And uh, no, no dad sits down with his new baby, his newborn son, and says, All right, little man. Over the next few years, I'm going to train you. And if you do well enough, if you keep enough of the rules, if you please me enough, I will give you the right to become my child. Right now, your sonship is in question a little bit, especially after last night. Nobody got very much sleep. But if you perform adequately, I will make you a son. No new father says that, right? You, you, you pick up the baby and you say, oh, you're mine. You're mine. You have my name. And I'm going to teach you to do all of the things that I do. I'm going to share my life with you. I'm going to share the things that make me happy. I, I, I'm going to talk to you about the things that make me sad. I'm going to teach you my skills. I'm going to share my life with you. Why am I going to do that? Because you're mine. Pastor Scott sometimes asks his kids, 
what's your last name? Harrison. Then he says, now go act like it. Based on who you are. You are now alive. God has united you to Christ. Now act like it. Act like a member of the family. And, and, And he already has work laid out for you to do. What's your name, Christian? Oh, good, you're in the family. Now act like it. I wonder if you've figured this out yet. These good works that God has prepared for you to do. If, if, I wonder if your life matches the grace that you have received. What, what sort of good works could Paul be talking about? Well, for some of you right now, your great focus is on raising children. Telling the generation to come about the goodness and the glory of God. Psalm 145 is your, your key verse is driving you right now. Some of you have this good work. You have extended and invited children not born into your family and you've welcomed them into your family to do that same work. Some of you are, are caring for widows or the sick or the elderly or the poor. Some of you teach the Bible. Some of you will move overseas and you'll plead with people in India and you'll say to them, I've experienced the grace of God. I was dead and now I'm alive and I want you to live with me forever. Won't you believe? Some of you, that's what you'll do. This, this and dozens of other good works are what formerly dead people do a family trait because we're in the family we've been united with christ and god is at work making his children look more and more and more what they are a member of the family our mission as a church is to call people to believe this news about jesus this is what we do we tell people about god's great grace we triumphantly sing of his great love and his great mercy and we call people to turn and and lay their hands on christ to, to cling to him. And I confess there's an urgency about it. About this time last year, we, we went to ninth grade orientation. And one of the things that surprised me at ninth grade orientation was the guidance counselors who spent about 45 minutes telling us that now is the time to prepare that you can, to ensure that your children will get into college. We're talking about internships and jobs and volunteer experience and clubs and extracurricular activities and all this stuff. And I thought to myself, we're ninth grade. This is ninth grade. She's not even yet in ninth grade. My great concern at this point in time is that my daughter will be able to find her locker and open it. Okay, And I'm not concerned about her getting into Harvard right now. Uh, Apparently, though, I should have been worrying about it. Maybe you've been around Christians that, that sound like that, that, that seem to talk like that all the time, that, that they, they say, this is urgent, you must do this, you must turn to Jesus. There's no time to lose. This is something you have to do today, it's something you have to do now, it is urgent. Uh, if you're tempted to say, really, come on, I mean, now? Friend, the time is limited, and I don't know how limited it is. If you're dead... By the grace of God, he will make you alive. This is an invitation that we extend. It's a plea that we make to all kinds of people in every ministry that we have as our church. This is what we believe. Will you believe it too? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for these wonderful verses in the book of Ephesians that tell us about 
what you have done to rescue us. Your great grace. Lord, we confess to you. Lord, we confess to you that we are very poor at receiving grace. For a number of reasons, Father, we don't want to be seen as a charity case. We're too proud. We feel like we have to pay you back. It can't be this simple. We're, we're so lost that we're, we're not even able to receive the good gift that you have given to us in the Lord Jesus, except for your good work. You have made us alive through the Lord Jesus. Lord, I do pray as, as we meet together this morning, I look around and I see many people who are members of our congregation and I have heard their testimony. I've heard them speak about their faith in the Lord Jesus. And I do give you thanks that you intervened in their life, their lives. You rescued them from darkness and brought them into the kingdom of your dear son. Would you, those of us who have that testimony already, would you fill us with joy again this morning and, and open our eyes and awaken us to the wonder of your great grace? Lord, I pray for those in, in our room this morning who have struggled with this or are uncertain of this. We pray about this because this is your good work. You rescue people. We're dead. So we pray that you would open blind eyes and replace hard hearts so the blind might see, the spiritually blind might see the glory of Christ and turn to him and trust in him. And stony hearts might be hearts of flesh to receive and delight in this good news of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Lord, make us more faithful in proclaiming this message. We are rescued from our sin by the overflow of your great love. So fill us with your great love too that we will overflow in sharing the good news with those that we know and those that we love. Help us to do that. We pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.